You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. By way of a reminder for you, January 14th, I preached a message on Matthew 28 about going boldly. Maybe you remember that. It's a long time ago now, a couple months. And I encourage you to be praying for an unbeliever in your life, praying for their salvation. Picking one out by name, and I don't know if you remember, if you were here at that time, if you wrote somebody down on that day, only by way of reminder do I come and say, how's that going? Are you continuing to pray for that, that one unbeliever to come to know Jesus, that they would be drawn by his spirit to Jesus and be a disciple of Christ? So uh, just by way of encouraging you and um, reminder, continue to pray and watch God. Be alert for what God is, is doing and how he is working there. In a minute, we're going to go to Mark chapter 12, but I don't want to start the sermon there. I want to start it in John chapter 1. So you can pick which place you go, um, but I want to read to you John chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll uh, turn to our text for the day, but I think this sets up well where we're going. So I'm going to read John 1. 1 through 11 at this point here. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own And his own people did not receive him. Let me pray again for our time. Lord, we celebrate you as the light. And so we ask again and agree in prayer with what Mild has already prayed. Lord, that your work, your spirit would go amongst us. Enlighten the eyes of our heart to see your glory. This rock that we can count on and trust in. Father, give us eyes as we read your scripture to hear the very words of your scripture, the various places we're going to go and cover, Lord, that, that we're reading your very words to us. This is God. You have spoken to us by your word. And so I pray we cherish it uh, and tremble at your voice and hear your voice in our lives. So, Lord, guide our time by your spirit. Guide my mouth to speak your truth and of your ways, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, now I invite you to turn to the book of Mark. Chapter 12 is where we're at. We are beginning this chapter 12 in the midst of some questions of, of the scribes and chief priests. And as you're getting to Mark chapter 12, verse 1, I think we have our picture from last week uh, up here. There it is. Um, you may not be able to read all that. Lincoln can, can't he? You, you know what's, what's there. Lincoln wrote down a list. He's got... 
uh, hell and heaven, and uh, there's temple of robbers, there's cursing the fig tree, there's come up to him, there's high priests, um, there's chief priests, um, oh, there's guardians of the temple, ransacking, all these words that were brought up last week in the sermon, and I love how Lincoln records those, and he's got some other pictures, I think he's got the sun coming here, now he's, he's holding a guy upside down in this bottom, I, I don't know, Lincoln, what that is. But you answer us when we're done, okay? You can, you can ask Lincoln what's going on there. But he's got, oh, baptism. I'm sorry, baptism. It's, right, it's labeled right there. I'm sorry, Lincoln. Okay, it's a baptism. So, yeah, um, it's a way to do it. So, yeah, it's one way. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Lincoln. I love you kids that take notes. And parents, if you've got a particular skill in drawing, just turn them in. I love to see those things. So, anyway, thank you guys for showing that. Well, we're going to kind of work through Mark 12. I won't read it right off the bat. But location-wise, just to help us come back to where we're at, we really have gone nowhere since last visiting with Jesus at the end of chapter 11. We're still in the, really the same setting. We're still in the temple courts, I think still in the presence of these chief priests and scribes and elders around uh, Jesus. They've gathered to question his authority. And then chapter 12 begins with Jesus speaking to them, and again, we find a parable. And Mark records this parable for us. And Jesus wouldn't answer directly their question on authority. And he's going to kind of continue his answer in the secret places of parables here. And again, these parables, they're not simply just Jesus, a unique way to illustrate stories. These are, these are stories with a punch. And I think often they're a punch to those that had not the understanding. And by God's grace, we want to seek to, to understand uh, the whole of the text here and see what Jesus is getting at. Verse 1 of chapter 12 really gives the setting and the background for the rest of this parable in verses 2 through uh, 8, uh, even into 9 there, but really gives the background for it. Let me read verse 1. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Maybe obvious here, but the owner of this, that we get it straight in our minds, the owner is the true builder of this. We can call it a farm here, of this, this uh, vineyard, this farm. And he, he, in fact, he farmed out the work to others. He entrusted it to other uh, tenants. It says, at least in the ESV here, you could say farmers that, that uh, he leased it to while he went away, and probably a, a longer journey. There's an idea of going away on a journey and leasing this ground. There, he let these tenants, these farmers, I'll refer to them interchangeably here, uh, take care of the vineyard while he's gone. Historically, there was a practice going on of this illustration that Jesus is is bringing out. Here's what one commentary says. Secular records of the day, as well as rabbinic literature, that's kind of the literature of the Jewish people of the day, depict a widespread system of absentee landowners who employed middlemen to supervise tenant farmers. Kind of like what we're seeing here, these guys that are farming the place in place of the real landowner. Uh, so really... The vineyard, as again another resource pointed out, it was, it was a much more 
uh, consuming operation, perhaps took taking years to get to the final outcome and the final fruit. This wasn't, you know, a planted in the summer, harvest in the fall, if I understand it right, place. This is a, this is a long-term care for this place, may, perhaps years, until this place would begin to bear the fruits of what the owner had planted. So the owner does return, actually it's his servants on his behalf, and he returns to harvest, to retrieve or collect these fruits of this vineyard. And that's verses 2 through 5. Listen to what these servants of the owner who have come, what they face when they get there. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Are you hearing, as we're in this section, are you hearing the familiar fig tree language again? This, This looking for fruit? Here the servants are coming. The owner returns via his servants to reap from his building, his vineyard, his uh, place. But instead, these tenants, these farmers, have selfishly decided, no, this was to be, this is their place. It's going to be their vineyard, their profits, their fruit. Any servants coming to right this ship are going to be either beaten or killed. There's parallels between these wicked tenants and farmers, and maybe you are hearing some of them, but parallels uh, in who Jesus is describing here and really between the, these in this parable and those of Israel when God, their owner, God, their master, had sent prophets. Let me just read two places. You don't need to go there, but you can make a, make a note. Uh, anytime I mention Scripture, feel free to go there. Don't let that phrase keep you, but I'm just, for time's sake, just reading them to you and we won't all go there, but Nehemiah 9.26 talks about this in the Old Testament. This verse, verse 26, comes after a recounting of all the ways in which the Lord took care of his people Israel. He was faithful to his promises. And then it says this in Nehemiah 9. It says, nevertheless, they, that's the people of Israel, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. And cast your law, speaking to the Lord here, cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. That's from the Old Testament. You're hearing this. Here's this parable now, kind of almost reliving some of these ideas. In the New Testament, Stephen shows up. Uh, Acts chapter 7, after Christ had gone to the Father, Stephen here, he's speaking to a council, uh, maybe even made up of some of these elders and scribes, and here's what he says to them. Stephen says to this council, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So, Jesus parable here it's really a history of God sending his prophets servants here in the parable to his people his vineyard his planting and yet they killed those who God had had sent but then we read on verses uh, six through eight we're really getting to the climax 
of both the greed and tragedy of these tenants and the overflowing grace of the owner. We'll talk about that. Look at verses 6 and 7. He had still one other. That's the owner. He had one other, a beloved son. Are you hearing? We're, we're hearing language from Mark here from a, a baptism way back, right, of Jesus. Let me start over. He had still one, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Before we look at these tenants or farmers and what they did to this son, I want to think a bit on the sequence of events of how they're sequenced here in this parable. Uh, if we just read this very quickly, uh, I at least, I'll just speak for myself, tend to, maybe tend to focus on the wickedness of these tenants and how they're treating these servants. And indeed, they were wicked. But as I studied, and really this is from studying others that looked at this, that I gleaned this from, think about it in this way and consider this. Consider the grace of the owner in, in this parable. There's grace going on here. That's hard at, a, at a, just a quick read to see. But there's grace. Time and again, he sent his servants, right, to this, these, these wicked tenants that keep beating, him, beating his servants up and killing them. And, and, and he, in the end, he sends his own son. This is grace. I mean, it, think of it this way. Wouldn't you expect the owner, maybe, maybe after one servant's beaten, he would come and just wipe out. These are bad employees. They're not doing the right thing. Just get rid of them. But no, he sends another and another and another. And finally, he sends his son. So I hope we can see in this, this idea um, Rather than just quick anger on the part of the owner, he was slow to anger. He abounded in steadfast love. Reminds us of a God, right, that is slow to anger. Abounding in love. And yet it's these tenants that rather than a desire to serve their master, this owner of the vineyard, they seek their own inheritance. And that's what they think. If they kill the son, they're going to get the inheritance. There's a couple of ways, and I don't want to take a lot of time to, to um, what this meant. If we kill him, we get the inheritance. I mean, we have a hard time understanding, well, how does that work? You kill the son, wouldn't, wouldn't the owner get the inheritance? How does all that work? There's a couple ideas. I'm not set on either one. One is, I, I like the most, I think these tenants, as this son comes to them, and they say, we're going to get the inheritance. Perhaps, you know, some think, well, they reason that the, the owner of the vineyard is dead. So the, the father has died. The son has now come. So they're thinking, if we kill the son, we've, we've killed out the family, right? And we get the inheritance. That's an idea. I like that one uh, the best. Another thought is perhaps if they've farmed this ground for so long, um, I don't know the technical name for that, but you know, you, you be on this area for so long, you eventually kind of own the place. It's just a, it's a way of ownership. Perhaps that's what was going on, and they just took it for, this is our place. They're coming back. We own this. It's been years since he left. That idea is possible. Uh, One guy, I like, he just says, it's probably just more closer to instinctive piracy. They're pirates. They're taking over the ship. They're taking over the boat, and they own this, and anybody coming, they're they're killing them. They're dead. Um, 
what we do have is a scripture, and we know that it points at least to this. We don't understand all the inheritance, but we understand they wanted it. They wanted it. They were greedy for the money. Give us this. That's what we want. They don't want to honor the one who owned the vineyard. Self has been placed above serving. So look at verse 8 and what they do. They took him. This is the beloved son. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I think verse 8, we cannot help but see the parallels. This vineyard of the Lord, the people of Israel, really the leaders are in view here, I think, as they're still around Jesus. And Jesus, the beloved, will come. He has come, and they're going to throw him where? Outside the city to the place of Golgotha, that hill where he's crucified. And yet even there, even the Son of Man, this beloved one, instead of at that moment sending down judgment on these wicked tenants, he sends grace by uh, submitting to the cross, to death, to bear the sins of those he came to save who would look to him for salvation. That's grace of this Son that has come. And yet, warning. And we get to that in verse 9. Jesus sums it up in this way in verse 9 of chapter 12. He says this. He asks him a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What do you think he's going to do when he, when he returns? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Again, there's a theme of judgment here. It's not all... Niceties. There is judgment gonna, that's going to take place here. And this theme, again, we've seen it already with the temple, that den of robbers, right? We've seen it with the withered, uh, the withered tree that bore no fruit. Not only does the owner, the Lord, return to find no fruit, but a greater extent, uh, those that bore no fruit, they've indeed killed his son. And so there's a warning to the leaders that are hearing this. But there's also hope. So there's warning to them. And there's hope. This vineyard will be given to others, verse 9 says. In the language of John 1 uh, that we read, and just going on a little further, it says, He came to His own, that's Jesus, and His own people did not receive Him. That's what we read. goes on to say, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's an other vineyard, there's an other people this vineyard's being given to. Um, Ephesians 2 puts it this way with Paul speaking to the Gentile about these, uh, the Gentiles about these others. He says this in Ephesians 2. So then, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles. You're not strangers, you're not aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of where? It's the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And here ties into where we're going. Christ Jesus himself being that cornerstone. In whom? In Christ. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And it's this cornerstone language that Jesus then uses in these next verses, verses 10 through 11. Let's read those in Mark 12. Jesus goes on, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected 
has become the corner stone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What's Jesus doing here? He's quoting from Psalm 118. I do want you to turn there. Turn back, keep a, keep a hand in Mark, but turn back to Psalm 118. We're not going to read it all. You can read the psalm. It's quite interesting because where we're going, just beyond it, we find uh, the words of Hosanna that were sung on Jesus' entry. So this Psalm 118, um, we've, we've actually been to before, and here we're back again just a few verses prior. Um, I'll start in verse 19. This psalm has with it, Psalm 118, there's themes of the love, steadfast love of the Lord. There's a distressful cry. There's the Lord's answer of deliverance in his name. In verse 19, then I'll read through 24, and you'll see this connection here. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As we see cornerstone here, we see it in our text in Mark 12. Different images may appear when we think of a cornerstone. Uh, Mainly, I just see it as a stone. I think perhaps we think of it in terms of dimension and straightness that it gives to the rest of the building. You get a straight stone, you get that straight corner, and your walls are going to be true and straight. But it depends on getting that straight. Now, another way to look at it is perhaps it's the capstone. It's the end stone of the building, kind of the the finisher-type stone. Um, These images, really all of them, what, what do they emphasize? What's this cornerstone emphasizing? I think it's the foundational, the centrality of the cornerstone. It's the, cor- it's the central thing that everything is built around. It's built around its soundness. It's important. It finishes the building, if you use that illustration, of kind of a capping stone going on. It's, it's this centered centeredness on this stone. So what Psalm 118 points out and And Jesus really restates is that this particular foundation stone, this cornerstone, it was, the contrast is it was rejected by the builders. They said, we don't want this stone. We've rejected it. In other words, you Jewish leader, you crowds who will yell, crucify him. They've rejected this cornerstone, this Christ. And yet this is the stone that becomes the foundation. It's the heart of the building and Really, the New Testament makes clear that this building is the church of Christ that is built on this stone, this cornerstone. Um, Jesus quotes it as well, but verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous. It's marvelous in our eyes. God's at work, and those who have spiritual eyes to see Jesus are going to respond. This is marvelous. And then you've got verse 24, and I do want to touch on that briefly. The familiar verse to us, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In light of the context of where we're at, what would you say, what, what day is in view here? It's, it's the day of the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone. It's the day of God's, I think, salvation here. 
so that Jesus is why we can say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We can worship. We can draw near to a holy God because of Jesus. We can live forever in the presence of our God and Savior because of this cornerstone, because of Jesus. This is the day the Lord has made. It's a day of salvation and joy in Jesus. So we need to look forward and say this is the day, this particular Sunday, April 29th, it's the day He's made, we agree. And then how much greater this day, it's the day of salvation. Remember the cornerstone that makes this day worth living today because of this stone, this cornerstone. Well, let's head back to Mark 12 and just briefly see the reaction of those that heard this parable. In verse 12, Jesus has spoken this to them, this rejected, uh, builders rejected this cornerstone, and here's verse 12, kind of the last of the story here. And they, this is that group gathered around, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. There's, there's, a, there's a way in which they see this parable and they go, I, I think that's about us. They've, somehow they've got that much, although they don't really understand it, right? If they did, what would they do? If they understood, you're the cornerstone. What, they ought to, on knees, bow and worship this king before him, before them, but they don't. And so there's a, there's a, a sense in which they, they, they get it, they think this is against them, but they don't see. In fact, they're still blind, blind as any, and fail to understand that this king was before them. So rather than repent for their rejection, they continue down their path and they seek to destroy this one before them, this cornerstone. Why don't you turn one other place with me maybe two other places uh, I want to lead you on I'd like you to go to first Peter chapter 2 if you would first Peter chapter 2 I love it when the Bible is its own commentary that the God breathed uh, word of God is a commentary on Christ our cornerstone I think this helps us it fits in well with this idea of Christ our cornerstone uh, Peter's writing to believers. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm just going to read 1 through 12 here. It says this. We're fresh off of cornerstone language, right? It says, Peter says to the believers, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There's two ways to take this stone. Continuing on, Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The question is for you and for me. What will you build your life on? What stone will form the foundation of your life? I have stones up here. And I can lift this without hurting my back, but not as good as some of you can. You're, you're better at this. Um, I have some rocks here. They're from various places. Keep them in my office. And uh, eventually, like today, I'm using them. So they work out good. If, if this is a stone, you would say, this is a cornerstone. I'm going to build my life on this stone. Um, I know Lincoln can see this. It's not very straight, is it, Lincoln? Right? It's kind of wobbly and that sort of thing. You think about building your life, building a whole, let's say we build this church based on this stone. I think our walls are going to be like, like that and up and down, all those sorts of things based on different rocks, uneven rocks, stones that we can build. And these compete really to be the foundation of our lives. Maybe one stone's a stone of, of pride or a stone of, I'm going to base my life on how others see me or how I'm perceived, uh, how your family looks at you or how others in school are going to see you. That's, I'm going to base my, my walls and my life on this and how people see me, that the opinions of people and what they say about me, that's going to build my life and be who I am. May we take our cues for building our lives from others rather than the Word of God. Maybe there's a stone you build your life on that's a stone of wealth and, and uh, physical wealth, prospering, kind of like these tenants of this story that we saw here. Some with this stone, they want to build uh, their life with material comforts, just a bit more money, the next thing, and, and then our lives are going to be set. So, so it's kind of a money issue or a property thing. I've got, okay, I'm set. All right, life's, I'm, I have a, I have a foundation. I'm going to be okay. Maybe that's one. Maybe there's one here, a stone of food or drink. You know, the, the double chocolate fudge sundae just really is something to give me pleasure that takes me away from the pain of this world, and, and that's what I want. Or maybe a stronger drink, per se, that we build our life and we say, I don't know how to function in life. That's the stone I'm going to build on. One more. This one's perhaps the straightest of all the stones I have up here. It's still not very straight, but it looks straighter. Maybe it's the stone of, of religion. 
alone. We do all, I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to live rightly. This stone looks straight enough, but really, what is it, it lacks any power for a true foundation. It's not focused on the stone. It's focused really on, on our own lives, our own strivings. And I'm just going to do better. I'm going I'm to read the Word, which I encourage us to do, and I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do better. How much better to build our lives on this stone, if this were, just go along with the illustration, a cornerstone. Straight, right? I can't hold it up for longer than that. That's what we're to build our lives on, this cornerstone. If it gives you a picture of the wobbliness of any other stone in our lives, to build our lives straight and true, how? We build it on not us. We build it on a stone. It's Christ, the cornerstone. He's the solid rock, as we sing about, the rock of ages, a stone of stumbling some people are going to trip over. That's what Peter's talking about. And some will build their lives on this stone. Anyone desiring to build a spiritual house must build on the rock of Christ. Or the rest is shifting sands, right? So what does this mean? What does that look like? One, I think, is we, we build on the foundation of the prophets. We build our lives on the Word of God. That's Christ. Christ who is the Word, who wrote the Word, who the Scriptures proclaim and lead us towards Christ is to build our lives on that because they point to Christ. So it's not a life based on, I, I know all the Scriptures, I can repeat to you all the books of the Bible in less than a minute, that sort of thing. It's my life needs the Word because I need Christ, because through the Word I have Christ. I learn of who this stone is. We build our lives on this rock of Christ. We build it on His blood alone to atone or cover our sins, on His righteousness alone in which we stand before God. That's building on that strong foundation of Christ. We build our lives on grace, His grace working in us, His grace that calls us and saves us it forgives us and justifies us and helps us and leads us to glorify Himself. And we build on the cornerstone, the rock of Christ. We really build for eternity. We who are in Christ, we are, we are not dead stones. We're alive. We're living stones, as, as Peter talks about. And we live because Jesus, our cornerstone, lives hope that's who we're building our lives on. I want to go back and I want to finish the book of John, not the whole thing, but just the, the section we were in as we close here and think about this stone. Think about Christ that has come, this cornerstone. I left you in verse 11 of John chapter 1, and I want to finish it through verse 18. Verse 11, we've talked about this parable Think shows he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What did they do with the beloved son? They rejected. And then verse 12, we just continue. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That God is working in you to build, to bring you to Christ. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Do you know him? Do you know the Savior? Today, I encourage you, build your life on Christ. Build your family. Dads, moms, build your family on the cornerstone, the rock of Christ. May we build this church, not more wood and not more structure, but on Christ, that there would be an aroma of Christ amongst us, that we would be built towards this foundation of Christ. And then we can take heart because he who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it. He's working today his grace in the lives of his people, that they would be cut out, shaped, and us formed into the same image in Christ-likeness to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I ask for each person here in this building that's hearing this and myself, the temptation is to start putting up our own bricks and building our own walls to make them look good again. Father, let us not do anything until we've come to the brick of bricks, the stone of stones who came and died and rose again that we might live. We pray our lives would be built on the solid, the eternally solid foundation of Jesus Christ. May we build on no other foundation. And Lord, give us noses to smell out other things that want to replace you as our foundation. And may we say, I I don't even want that. I want you, Lord, alone. So, Lord, lead us to you. I pray we not be the, the tenants who have rejected your son, that we would, by faith, look to your son for life everlasting in your presence. We pray this, Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus.